Hey, New City. It's great to be with you today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you in person, my name's Roger Rushing, and I'm so glad to be with you today and to get to share this message with you. Today wraps up our series on the Psalms, a series all the feels, and next week, Nate Bush will be back with us, and he'll be introducing a new series, uh, House Church. I'm really excited about this series. It's going to be a great one, and so I hope that you'll, you'll join us for that and that you'll participate in that. But today, we're looking at Psalm 146. And Psalm 146 isn't just the last of our series, but it's, it's the first of the last of the whole book. And what I mean by that is Psalm 146 is one of five psalms that end the whole Psalter, and they're all united in a way to form a unit. And the thing that unites them is this word, hallelujah. It's the first word and the last word in each of the psalms. And hallelujah gets translated, it's Hebrew, and it gets translated to praise the Lord. So all of these are psalms in which we praise the Lord, we're called to sing hallelujah, and so they're known as the hallelujah psalms. And what's interesting is our introduction, kind of the, the beginning of this psalm today, not only is it this call to praise the Lord, praise the Lord, but there's a special invitation to the Psalter's own soul to sing out to God and to praise God with all that he is. It's a strange way to begin. In fact, there are only two other places in the Psalms where this invitation is given to the soul to cry out. The Psalms are pretty communal, and yet this is really individualistic, and so it's strange. But it's really neat the way that this unit works together because that's how the unit begins. And then if you go over to Psalm 150, which is the last Psalm of the Psalter, and you go to the last verse, verse six, it reads this way. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And so this unit begins with the individual and the innermost part of, of who he is crying out praise to the Lord. And then it ends with all of creation, everything that has breath praising the Lord. So it's a great way to, to kind of tie up this book and to tie up this book of hymns and prayers that we've been singing together and praying together. But it also raises a question that we should ask ourselves, which is, why? Why should we praise the Lord? I know that might seem like a strange question to ask, because obviously praising God is a good thing, right? But still, we're in this, this place where we should ask ourselves, why is God worthy of our praise? And the psalmist of Psalm 146, he gives us an answer to this, and it's because God is faithful and trustworthy. And we see that, in fact, with this kind of instruction that he begins the psalm with by telling us, don't trust people. Don't trust humanity. Don't trust princes, the people in power and authority. Don't trust them. They're just mortal men. And they fail. And not only that, but even the good ones, once they die, all their plans die with them and they're just replaced by somebody else. So how can you count on that? How can you give your life over to those systems or those powers or those people? But instead the psalmist says, put your trust in God. And he begins to tell us that God is trustworthy and true. And in verse five, he says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. See, the psalmist is telling us we're blessed, we're in a good place, we're in the place that we should be when we're putting our trust in God because God is trustworthy and God is faithful. And so the psalmist goes on to give us kind of two main reasons why we can trust God and why God is seen as faithful. It's almost like we get a, a brief glimpse of God's resume and what makes him kind of qualified for our praise and qualified for our trust. And one of those is what we already read that God is the creator. And so he says that God is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. 
And this is significant for the psalmist that God is the creator. But it's important for us to realize that it's not just significant because, because God has created everything. That's not just all there is to it. There's something important for the Israelite people and there's something important for us in the very story of creation that we see in the Bible. There's something that that story is trying to tell us that's important about the character of who God is and who we are in relation to God. And the psalmist is using language that harkens back to that, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.1 begins with, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. Now, if you're one of my Revive students, uh, you may already know where I'm going with this, and you may be tired of me going to this place, because you know that the words formless and void, that those words that get translated from Hebrew are two of my favorite Hebrew words, tohu and bohu. Tohu and bohu aren't just my favorite words because they sound funny, but tohu and bohu are really important to this idea of what's happening not only in creation, but it kind of shows up with a theme throughout the scriptures. And what's happening here is tohu and bohu aren't just descriptive words where we translate them formless and void, but they're almost like another character in the creation story. See, the way that the creation story is, is being set up is that it's going to be this face-off between Yahweh, God, and this other force, Tohu and Bohu. Because Tohu and Bohu represents this force of chaos. See, it says that in the beginning, God was creating heavens and the earth, and all there was was darkness and water upon water. There's no space for life. There's no boundaries. There's just this nothingness and this chaos. And so that's what Tohu and Bohu is. It's that force of chaos that threatens life. And so it's going to be the showdown between Yahweh, the bringer of life, and Tohu and Bohu that threatens that life, only it turns out it's not much of a contest. Because God, the creator, the one who is trustworthy and true and faithful to the end, he is the one who speaks and begins to order the chaos. And so we see in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, the darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God, the Ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God begins to speak into this darkness, into this chaos. And there's no, there's no warring, there's no fight, there's no struggle. God simply overcomes the chaos. And so God says, let there be light. It's this invitation and here light is. And it's not just that there's light, but it says that God separates the light from the darkness. So there's something really cool that's going on here. First of all, I think this whole chapter is really cool and I wanna go like word by word through it, but we don't have time. So I'm gonna to try to paint in broad brushes, but here's what I want you to see today. There's a lot of other stuff to see, but here's what I want you to see today. What God is doing is God is creating this space for life. See, he's taking the formlessness and he's forming it and then he's taking that void and he's filling it. He's ordering the chaos. And so we can see that in day one, God creates light and he separates light and darkness and he creates a space. And then if you skip to day four, you see that God fills that space with the sun and the moon and the stars. And then you see it even more clearly in day two, God separates water from water. What he's doing is creating sky and sea. And in that separation and those boundaries that he's making, again, he's creating space for life. And then you skip to day five and you see that God fills that space he fills the sky with the birds of the air and he fills the sea with all the fish and the creatures of the sea. And then you can see the pattern taking place, right? In day three, you have the, the dry land. God separates the dry land from the water. He makes boundaries on where those waters of chaos can go. I love later in Job, towards the end of it, when God answers Job's questions with just more questions, 
God comes before Job and says, look, I'm going to ask you all these questions. At the end, really, the answer is just God is God and we are not. But one of those poetic questions that he asked Job is he, he says, were you there? Were you the one who set the boundaries for the sea? Are you the one who tells the waters you can come this far and no further? Hear your proud waves stop. I love that imagery and that poetry that we see, but that's what God's doing. He's saying, here is where the chaos of the sea stops, and here's a dry land where there's space for life. And not only that, but the dry land brings forth vegetation, and so now it's ready to sustain life. And then you skip to day six, and you see again, God fills that space then. So he forms the formlessness, and then he fills the void. He fills it with all of the creepy, crawly things of the earth. And then on that same day, in the image of God himself, he makes humanity. And he breathes life into humanity and everything is rightly ordered. You see, it's so much more than just God as a creator. God is a creator and in, the cre in this creation, he right orders everything. He says that the powers of chaos and death can't come to the space for life. And he creates this right orderedness. And this is what we'll later call, what we call often in the scripture, shalom. Shalom gets translated as peace and it is, but peace means more than just the way that we tend to think about peace, peace and shalom means that things are the right way. Things are the way that they're supposed to be. And so we see on day seven that God rests and God blesses the creation and God brings forth shalom because everything is rightly ordered and the chaos is overcome. And so God is the creator. God is the creator, the right order, the shalom bringer. And this is why the psalmist says, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord. For he is the one who can create that space for life. But there's another important quality for God here, another important role that's, that the psalmist brings to our attention. See, God isn't just a creator, but God is the redeemer. See, God created everything to be right ordered and in its place. And in that place, we have space for life. And yet we, his creation, looked at his order and rejected it. We said, God, you made a mistake. We can do better. Because what you've done is you've ordered everything that you're up here and we're down here. See, we want to switch that, or at least we want to be level with you. See, we said to God, we want to be gods unto ourselves. And so where Genesis 1 starts with all this right ordering, and then Genesis 2 brings this poetic creation of humankind, Genesis 3 and following, we see this rejection of God's order and we see sin entering into the world. We see brokenness and darkness. What we see is that God had defeated Tohu and Bohu, the chaos and forces of death. And then we invited them right back in because we reordered everything, but our ordering doesn't hold up. It doesn't work that way. We aren't meant to be God for ourselves. And so we see all of these boundaries being overtaken. We see those spaces for life disappearing and we see death and brokenness and pain and suffering and sin entering in. We see this probably most clearly in the story of Noah. Only a few chapters from the creation story. Everything is so bad. There's so much evil. There's so much of that chaos that's been brought back in that we see this kind of reversal of creation. And all that space is undone. The waters that were separated below spring up. The waters from above crash down. And almost all space for life is eliminated and it's reduced to just the space on the ark. 
And so we see in the scriptures that Tohu and Bohu kind of get represented by, by water and chaos and sea and all of that messiness. But here's the thing, God isn't okay. God isn't okay with that. God isn't okay with just saying, hey, you know what, guys? I created something real good. Like, that was my best work. You know what? You're ungrateful. I'm just, that was it. I'm going to go start somewhere else. That's not what God does. Nor is God okay looking at us and saying, because you rejected me, therefore I reject you. But instead, God says, even though you rejected me, I will not give up. Even though you rejected me, I will always love you. And so God looks down into the depths of our darkness, into our brokenness and the death that we've invited in and the chaos of life. And God, God comes down to it. In fact, God sends his son into the depths of it. And so Jesus, he empties himself and humbles himself to the point of becoming like you and like me. Someone who can experience that, the consequences of that brokenness. Somebody who can bleed and hurt and die. And yet here's one of the things that's really cool. We see that Jesus enters into that place, into that place of chaos and death and darkness, and he begins to bring new life. And we see it all throughout his ministry. But one of the coolest places that we see it that we might not realize we see it is in the story when Jesus and his disciples are on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, he's had a hard day. He's gone to sleep. The disciples are there and suddenly a storm rages up. And not just any storm, but the kind of storm that blots out the sun and the waves are ginormous and the wind is ripping apart the boat. See, that, that chaos is creeping in again. The boundaries are being overcome and the disciples know there's no space for life. They're going to die. And so what do they do? They go to their rabbi who's asleep and they wake him up. And I don't think that they, they wake him up so that they have any hope that he can do anything about it. I think they wake up their friend so he can at least face death alive. And so they can go on this last part of the journey together. And so they shake him awake and they say, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus gets up, but he doesn't just wake up to die with them. He gets up and he speaks to the chaos. He speaks peace. He speaks shalom to the wind and the waves. He right orders it. He redeems that space for life and he saves them. This, by the way, this is a digression, but it's one I want to make and you're not here to stop me. So I'm going to do it. But by the way, if you flip to Revelation, I think you see something really cool. You might not think it's cool, but if you flip, flip to Revelation, you see this. You see John is given a vision of heaven and he's given kind of a vision of the, the control room of heaven. And in John's early vision of heaven that we see in Revelation chapter four, verse six, it says that he sees a sea. He sees a sea before the throne, but it says that the sea is glass, like crystal. It's been, chaos has been so subdued. It's like the sea has become crystal. It's no longer threatening. And not only that, but if you flip to Revelation 21, which is where both New City and Revive gets its name, you look at, at John's vision where he sees the new heaven and the new earth. And one of the first things he says in verse 21 of chapter 20, or verse one of chapter 21, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. See, in Revelation chapter 21, we see this hearkening back to the way that things are supposed to be. We see the, the fullness of the kingdom of God having come in such a way, the full redemptive work having of Jesus being completed. 
in such a way that no longer are those forces of chaos a threat. No longer are they there, ever present, waiting to overcome, to, to bring their death and destruction and to threaten the boundaries of life. They've been dealt with. Tohu and Bohu are no more. Anyway, I think it's cool. But let's get back to, to Psalm 46. We see that God is not only the creator, but God is the redeemer. God is the never giving up, always loving, go to the very end, redeemer. And so praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But what does redemption look like? What does it mean? We saw what it means for God to create and be the one who right orders and, and who, who keeps the chaos at bay and brings shalom. But what does redemption look like? Well, we see in Psalm 146, the redemptive work of God. We see beginning in verse seven, that God is the one who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. So that's what redemption looks like. But there's a problem in Psalm 146. To say there's a problem with Psalm 146, it's not really that there's a problem with the psalm, but not surprisingly, it's a problem with us. It's a problem with us that affects the way that we sometimes read scriptures like Psalm 146. And the problem is that we have this tendency and this, it's a dangerous tendency, but we have this tendency as Christians, especially modern Western Christians, we have this tendency to over-spiritualize the faith, which it seems strange to say that because how do you over-spiritualize something like faith, which seems so spiritual? But the problem is, it's rooted in this dichotomy, this split that we have between the physical and the spiritual. And there's all kinds of complex reasons for this. It's born out of Greek thought and philosophy and it underpins a bunch of other things and we don't have time to get into all of that. But what the result has been is that even in our theology, we carry with us this, this hard split that divides up the physical and the spiritual and it kind of divorces the one from the other. And the way that that plays out, the way that that can look like, or what that can look like in our lives theologically is we can find in our Christian walk that we get to a place where we feel like the only thing that matters is, is getting into heaven. See, the only thing that matters is the life after this one. And the problem with that is, the threat of that is, that if the only thing that matters is the life after this one, then it's easy for this life not to matter. But it's easy for us to look at what's most important is that I be spiritually right with God. And the way that we tend to define that in this world where we kind of split off the spiritual and the physical is we define that in right thinking, or at least not bad thinking. We try not to do bad things. It's interesting, we normally define it in not doing things. So we don't wanna think bad things, we don't wanna say bad things, we don't wanna hang out with bad people, all of these things, but we've got this checklist that we come up with. And the idea is that we need to check the boxes off this list so that we can kind of punch our tickets so that when we die, we get into heaven and then in heaven we get all of the things that we think we're supposed to get with heaven. And the problem with this then is it makes this life, it makes this world either kind of just this weird waiting room or maybe this test that we're supposed to pass or hopefully pass. And again, the way we pass it is by checking off the right boxes or maybe getting the right number of merits. 
But the problem with that, when we over-spiritualize faith in such a way, then we, we tend to misread texts like Psalm 146. And not just Psalm 146, but so many others. In fact, if you look at the way that Psalm 146 starts with praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and this call, oh my soul, praise the Lord. The, the word that we translate there, soul, is nephesh in Hebrew. And it does mean soul, but for us, soul has become so spiritualized that we just see it as that thing maybe that exists after our physical body is dead. And that's not the idea of, of nephesh. The idea here is that this is the very essence of who we are. This is the, the life that we have, the being that gives us being. That's what the psalmist is saying. What the psalmist is saying is not, hey, spiritually, I need to praise God. And then maybe I can do whatever I want over here. Or at least it doesn't matter. But all that matters is that, you know, I'm singing the right songs or praying the right prayer in my head. What the psalmist is saying is he's imploring every fiber of who he is to cry out together and praise the Lord. But it's not just a problem with how we read the beginning of the psalm. Where, where it really becomes problematic is how we read redemption. Because we read this and we see God is a creator and then God is also the redeemer. And we see redemption looks like bringing freedom to the prisoner, setting the, free, the prisoner free. But the problem is we over-spiritualize that in such a way as to say that, you know, what God is freeing are the prisoners of sin. You know, hear me carefully. If you're going to check out, don't check out yet. Check out in a minute. But hear me carefully. I'm not saying that that's not what God does. Jesus came to set us free from sin. I believe that we are all slaves to sin. We are all dead to sin without Jesus. And only by the grace of God and by the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus do we have this one who comes and sets us free. I believe that Jesus is the chain breaker, the one who throws open the doors of sin and death and, and rescues us out of that pit. But the problem is that when that's all we see, then we don't realize that God also cares for the literal, actual, physical, imprisoned for those who are enslaved, especially in this context, what, what the psalmist is talking about here are debtors. People who could not pay their debt and as a result were thrown themselves or possibly their entire family has been thrown into debtor's prison. And there's no hope that they're ever going to be able to make enough money in debtor's prison to pay off their debts. In fact, their only hope is that somebody else, a relative or somebody else might come and redeem them and pay for them to get out. Do you see how these spiritual things are all wrapped up also in the physical? See, God cares about the literal prisoner, the one who has been devalued as a human and is seen only as a commodity. So they're only seen as having value of the amount of money they owe and not the life that they carry within them, the nephesh, the breath of God within their lungs. So we lose sight that they too are created in the image of God and that they too need to be treated with dignity and cared for and redeemed. And so the psalmist Sarah here says, God is a God of justice. And part of justice is looking at the system that has created these, these people who are enslaved in this way and sets them free. And so we see that God heals blindness, but we over-spiritualize that. And we think that God only cares about our spiritual blindness. And God does. God wants to heal our spiritual blindness, but one of the things he wants us to see with our new eyes is that those who are, who are, that there are those in this world who are disenfranchised, those who are marginalized, 
See, especially in ancient times, the blind, they could make no money. They could not provide for their family. They were left only stripped of their dignity on the street corner, begging for somebody's change in order to get enough food to eat so that they could continue on to do the same thing the next day and the next day and the next. They were without hope. It seemed like there was nothing they could contribute to society. And God cares about those. God cares about those who are marginalized. God cares about those who are disenfranchised. God cares about those who are socially powerless. And so we see that God is on the side of the widow and the fatherless, the orphan, the immigrant. It's because these had no legal standing. There was no male to to provide them with legal standing. And so they had no voice. They were considered less than. And God cares about them. We can't over-spiritualize it and just say that, that we ourselves are orphans that God has adopted. That is part of it. But part of what we have to see is that God has adopted us into this family so that we can continue to extend that family to others, to care for those who are pushed to the outside, to hear the voice of the voiceless, and to join our voice to theirs. See, Jesus, when he saw the 5,000 who were hungry, he didn't just give them a sermon about how he was the bread of life and try to get them to think rightly or to, to pray goodly, but he fed them with real bread and real fish because they had real hunger and he really cared. So we have to be careful that we don't over-spiritualize because we see that Jesus heals the blind. He brings sight to the, to the spiritually blind, but he also brought physical sight to the blind. He healed those who couldn't walk. When the paralytic was brought to them, he not only said, your sins are forgiven, but he also said, take up your mat and walk. See, it's not an either or thing. We have to understand that the spiritual and the physical, they're enmeshed, that we have this, this wholeness that every part of our being, God wants to redeem. That every part of creation, God wants to redeem. God has not given up on this world. And it's, just not, it's, it's not just waiting for the next one. We see that Jesus cared, really cared about physical needs as well as spiritual. What's interesting, when Jesus started his ministry, his first recorded sermon that we have in Luke, he sits down to, to, to teach He's given the scroll of Isaiah and he he opens a scroll and he reads these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after reading that, he sits down, he begins to teach and he says, It says in verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, Jesus is telling them the kingdom of God is here. It's being ushered in right now in your presence in this moment. The kingdom of God, that thing that felt so far off when Isaiah pinned these words, that kingdom of God is being enacted now, Jesus says, in my own life. And Jesus goes on to minister in this way. And it's really interesting, later in in Luke, John the Baptist, he's in prison and he's having this crisis of faith. And so he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? 
Are you the one we've waited for or is there another? And again, Jesus doesn't give some theological discourse. He doesn't hand them a paper to have, you know, to have John read in prison. He doesn't give them a prayer for John to pray rightly and think better. Instead, in verse 22 of chapter 7, it says, And Jesus answered them, the disciples, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. There's real representation of what's going on and what had they seen and heard. That the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. He said this because this was the evidence of the kingdom. And so we can't over-spiritualize and just give up on this world. Because the kingdom that Jesus began enacting wasn't just spiritual, but it was also physical. And so when Jesus was asked, what's the most important command? What do I really need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God. But he says, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. He's saying, love the God, Lord your God with every fiber of your being, all that you are. Not just spiritually, but everything. And then interestingly, he goes on to say, and the second is like it, out of that love that you have for God, when you love God wholly with all that you are, then go and love your neighbor. Put feet to it. So Jesus came not only to redeem the future, but Jesus came to bring a new future through the redemption of the present. See, Jesus cares about this life. And Jesus calls us to partner with him as co-creators to work with him in bringing about this new creation, just like it was meant to be at the beginning when God made us partners in creation and said, here is all of creation, tend it, take care of it, bring forth more life from it. And so Jesus invites us in to be co-creators, to be partners, to work with him in bringing about this new creation. He invites us to be partners with him in justice bringing, in restoration seeking, in this redemptive work, this redemptive kingdom work. But here's the problem. The problem is that, that the kingdom that Jesus invites us into runs totally counter to our King of the Hill kingdom. You know what I mean by King of the Hill, right? You played King of the Hill. So I grew up here in Albuquerque. Uh, I, I went to school at Sombra del Monte. I wanted to point over there, but I don't know if it's over there. Uh, but it's somewhere. But I went to school at Sombra del Monte, and I remember that they had these huge, like, six-foot-tall concrete like pipes that would make these tunnels and stuff that we could play on out on the, on the playground. I don't think they have them anymore because it turns out they were really not safe. Uh, but we would, we would love every time at recess that we could, we would go and play King of the Hill on these pipes. So the recess bell would ring and we would all swarm these pipes and then you would be trying to jump on top and clawing and climbing and pushing and striving to get on top of this pipe. And then when you did, when you were up on top and you were king of the hill, you spent every ounce of your energy, every bit of your focus trying to keep everybody else down. You wanted to be the king of the hill when that recess bell rang again to go back to class. And so you used any tactic you could. You kicked him in the face, you threw elbows, you punched whatever you had to do, you pushed them off. And the whole time, they're down underneath trying to grab and claw and scrape and pull you down any way that they could. You can see how this was not safe at all. But this is the way that we have been, been taught to learn that life works. So we have King of the Hill ethics and we have King of the Hill politics and we have King of the Hill economics. 
And all of these things run counter to this vision of justice that we see time and time again throughout the scriptures. In fact, in Isaiah 40, you see this beautiful vision of justice where God is coming and says, prepare a way for the Lord. This is also quoted in in the Gospels with John the Baptist. But prepare a way for the Lord. The Lord is coming. He's making a highway to us. We don't have to get to him. He's coming to us. But it says that every mountain will be brought low and every valley will be raised up. What that is, if you envision that in your mind, that's a leveling of the playing field. There is no king of the hill, for there is no hill to be king of. There's only the right orderedness of God here and us here, equal and made in his image. So see, we are called to enact that same type of redemptive work. We are called to be a part of that same justice seeking. Micah 6 tells us, says, what does the Lord require of you? Is it all of this sacrifice and all of this holy righteousness? That's not what it is. It says, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, which we should probably make a note, that's different than tweeting justice. But to do justice to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our Lord. And we see it again lived out in the life and death of Jesus Christ. The one who is so far above and yet came down to us and not only came into our brokenness and our dark and our chaos, but allowed it to be taken in upon him and crushed him. He died for us. There is no king of the hill mentality there. And there is no room for shalom at the top of King of the Hill. It's a choice that we have to make. Will we enact shalom? Will we help to be partnering with God to bring about the right orderedness of life? And so what that means is sometimes that means that we see obstacles in the ways of others that we can remove. Little valleys that we can raise up. But more often than not, it means us coming down off of whatever hill we're on. And not arguing about why we have a right to be there or how easy this hill is to climb or even trying to deny that there's a hill to begin with, but we come down off of that hill and we go down into the valley. And in the valley, we find that our trust can't be put in human beings. Our trust can't be put in princes and powers and authorities and systems. There we find even that our trust can't be put in our own hands, but instead our trust is put in the rod and the staff of God that comforts us and guides us and assures us of his presence there in the valley, even the valley deep in the shadow of death. And it's in that time that we're able to then give all of who we are, our entirety surrendered to God in such a way that that then God can use our hands as though they were his hands. It's there that we find that our bodies become the body of Christ. It's there that we find that when people look at us, they don't see our face, but they see the image of our Father reflected there. And we see then that God is able to enter in and through us and with us to do God's restorative, redemptive, justice-bringing, life-enhancing, life-giving, life-space-making work. And so we we have to decide which kingdom we want to be part of. Which system are we going to follow? Are we going to be part of the king of the hill system that honestly benefits us a lot sometimes? It's where we've got a lot of our stuff. It certainly 
how we're able to stay so comfortable? But are we going to give our lives over to that? Or are we going to give our lives over to the kingdom of God? Are we going to give our lives over in such a way that we praise God with all that we are? And here I'm not just talking about about singing, but I'm talking about a praise that is a type of, of continually giving and surrendering and seating our whole selves over to who God is. So that's the question. But if we'll do it, what we find is that even though we don't have the fullness of the kingdom yet, we find that the kingdom is already coming. It's been coming and it continues to come and it will come in its fullness. And so even in the midst of the shadow and the brokenness, even when we enter into the suffering and pain of others, we can still cry out and sing, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord, for he is faithful, he is with us, he is creator, and he is the one who is continually working, continually moving, ever inviting and ever calling us to be a part of his new creation that he is enacting. You know, if I was able to sing, which I'm not, but if I was able to sing right now, I would like to close by singing the doxology, but I can't sing, so, so I'll just use the words, but praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God, creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. So this time uh, at the service, I want to draw our attention to three kind of ways for us to respond today. There's lots of other ways, but just in this moment, there are three things I want to draw our attention to. The first is giving. I don't know if you've thought about giving this way, but giving is more than just uh, supporting New City, which we appreciate. It's more than just trying to do something good. But giving is another act of worship. It's another way that we submit ourselves to God. See, our King of the Hill economics say that what we have, we've earned, we've fought for, we've clawed, we've gotten, and so we need to hold tightly to it. And we need to be afraid that others are going to try to take it. But our King of the economics say that everything we have, even the very breath in our lungs, is a gift from God. And they call, it calls us to hold loosely to it and to give it freely back. And so in giving we're recognizing that our trust is not in our own hands and our own ability to, call, to crawl and scrape and claw our way to the top. But even in this, we say, God, this is yours, so take it. Put it to good use. So I encourage you, if you want to worship in that way today, give. You can give online, you can text to give, you can probably even mail a, a check, I don't know. But just, just look at it and say, as an act of giving and an act of worship to God, this is yours. The other thing is communion. I encourage you to take communion together. Uh, we're filming this now with people in the room and a small group of us, we're gonna take communion after this is over. But I encourage you to take communion. I encourage you to take the bread and the cup and to recognize the links that our Redeemer is willing to go to. Think about the hill that Jesus stepped down off of and the valley of death that he stepped into for us and the gift of his life that he gave us. Think about that as you take the bread that represents the body of Christ broken for you and the cup that represents the blood of Christ shed for you. And the last is prayer. We're gonna to pray together here in just a moment. The prayer today may be one you're familiar with. It's the Lord's Prayer, the words that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, where we ask for God's name to be holy, and we pray that God's will would be done and his kingdom would come, but that his will would be done here and now on earth as it is in heaven. 
But I also wanted to let you know that there's an opportunity after this, while the last couple songs are praying, if you want to, to join us in a virtual prayer room, if you have a need that you would like a, a member of the staff, myself or others to pray with you about, there's a link in the comments or in the, in the chat section here that you can click on. And so after we finish our communal prayer, I encourage you to click on that and come and join us and let us gather together with you virtually to pray. But let us pray now these words together, wherever we are, let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever. Praise the Lord. Alleluia. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen.